is always a difficult factor in real estate investing. And if you can dissolve that difficulty factor, then you can make it work. Right now, it's like finding deals that pencil, right? Like that's today's problem. Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We have a real treat for you today. Matt Faircloth, he's the founder of the DeRosa Group. Uh, Matt is a 15-year investor, capital raiser, author, uh, published by Bigger Pockets, Raising Private Capital, How to Build Your Real Estate Empire with Other People's Money. Uh, he has incredible content online, a tremendous source, folks, uh, of information. Really a, a great follow. Matt, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today. James, it is an honor to be here, man. Thank you. So let's let's jump in here. You 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 have a, a portfolio of over a thousand units. You've raised capital. You've done fix and flips. You've done the elbow grease. You know, kind of <laughs> sourcing those those deals and putting that hard work in better returns. Right. Yeah, you've done multifamily. Yeah. Where did where did you start? I got started, uh, believe it or not, James, on a little single family home that I lived in one bedroom and I rented out the other two to two of my buddies um, just kind of stumbled into it that way. I had, I had read Rich Dad Poor Dad. So I wanted to own the real estate. I knew where it would take me. Um, and so I, I just was, was in tune with all that, but just didn't really do all the math on how great it was going to go in living, you know, mid twenties at the time, living in one bedroom, renting out the other two rooms of two buddies of mine. And, and I was able to live there rent free and, had a good day job, you know, uh, had a good salary and was able to pay off all my student loans, all my credit cards, um, squirrel up some cash. I, I got myself bad debt free within a couple of years through that arrangement. And that was like the, the Kool-Aid that I needed to drink to get me to jump into real estate full time. So uh, was this, you're headquartered in Trenton, New Jersey, right? I, you, up until recently, we actually just sold the office building that my company was out of. So now we're kind of headquartered out of wherever we sit at the time. So and that's one of I've, the I've got I've got two partners that w we all work from home or work from wherever we are. I'm sitting sitting talking to you sitting from a Regis right now. So that's my headquarters today. <laughs> one of the, the the great things that came out of COVID is the ability to do these things and and stay connected. Yes. So when you were doing this. Um, kind of arbitraging and, and renting out your rooms how old and was that in new jersey yeah no no that was in um conchahawken try and spell that uh conchahawken pennsylvania um just north of philadelphia uh where I, I met my wife when she was finishing up at university of pennsylvania i was a traveling sales rep her and i both lived around the philly area and did a lot of our dating around philly um, and then when we got married, we needed to move to New Jersey for her job. I was quitting my, quitting my job with the company I was with and wanted to, we had to move to New Jersey for her employer had a residency requirement. Um, and so we moved there 
And I believed in like the acres of diamonds concept, you know, meaning like there's, I, I don't need to invest in Albuquerque or whatever, because I live in New Jersey. So let's find a place to invest right here. And so we had some investments in Philly and we kept growing in uh, the next town over from where we lived. And the next town over was Trenton. Um, and so we started doing landlording work in Trenton, New Jersey, and became fairly proficient Trenton landlords um, over a, a long period of time, did a lot of fix and flips, did a lot of rehabs, bought an office building that, that said we just recently sold there um, and, and grew our business in Trenton, New Jersey for many years. So was there a mentor, uh, a moment? I mean, to hmm. even even the what at this stage of your your career, you know, thinking about renting out rooms, of course, that's a natural thing to do. But most of us never think of real estate that way, right? Yeah. What were the the driving pieces for you to say, wait, I can start to monetize this thing, not just look at it as a place to live in and, yeah, yeah. and then go on that journey? What were the influences for you? You know, James, I'd love to tell you that I had this whole business plan all written out and everything like that, but I kind of stumbled into it, man, at the end of the day, you know, like I knew that I, again, I was a traveling sales rep and I had sold, I was selling industrial machines, like these really, really loud, really, really, you know, obnoxious machines that that are used in manufacturing. Um, and so I sold them. Uh, I sold a ton of them to Minute Maid Orange Juice up in New Jersey. Um, and I had this big commission check just sitting in my city. I didn't know what to do with it. It was so much money at, at the time. It was a lot of money, right? To, to a 20 something, it's a lot of money. Um, and I didn't know what to do with it. And so I was like, well, I, I got to set that somewhere. So I, I, my landlord was ending my lease. I was like, well, I got to go somewhere. And I had, it was me and my two knucklehead friends that were all renting this little house that was all leased. And the real estate broker that was selling the house, he was actually ending our lease contract so that he could put the house up for sale for the owner. So the real estate broker was like, hey, I need to get in here, do some showings, get this, get that. And I was like, well, I want to buy a house too. I don't want to buy this house because this house is kind of a beat up rental property, but I want to buy a nice house that has, for a 25 year old, you aspire for to live in a place one day that has central air conditioning, mm -hmm. you know, or that has a washer dryer in the house. I don't have to go to a laundromat, you know? So I wanted some some amenities like that. And so that real estate agent that was selling the rental property I lived in was, was kind enough to take me around town and show me a few other houses for sale that had a few of the bolt-on amenities I wanted. And so I said, okay, great. And my other two knucklehead buddies living with me were like, well, where are we going to go? I'm like, you're going to come with me because Robert Kiyosaki told me if I'm a landlord, I can make money. And so they... Rent along went came along with me, and each of these guys started paying me five hundred bucks a month in this new house. But the thing was, my mortgage was nine forty, and so I was living there for free and making sixty bucks a month cash flow, right? And I I kind of stumbled into it, but it was only through like the core principles of you know Rich Dad Poor Dad taught me about like okay, I need to own assets, which I had looked. I was able to look at the house as an asset. This he also said in Rich Dad Poor Dad your house is not an asset. The home that we live in, most of the, the talking heads, the, uh, you know, of, of the world. Um, uh, what's the big one um, that everybody talks about the uh, Dave Ramsey, you know, your house is, Oh, pay your house off, whatever. Well, Kisaki gave me another way to look at it, that your house is not an asset. It's actually an expense. 
But by leasing it out, it made me realize that I was creating an asset for myself and, and a revenue stream and, and something that eliminated a, a big expense line I had for myself and most Americans have is their living expense. I was able to make that zero, which in that enabled me to quit my job because now, now I'm living, I don't have any overhead for my, my, my homestead for where I live. That's zero. So now I can, my, my, my overhead's not as well, a lot less than it would have been um, had I had a mortgage to pay on my own without roommates. It's uh, amazing how, how many successful entrepreneurs and investors I speak to that reference Kiyosaki's book. Oh boy. It, it, it is folks. If you do nothing else, Pick up Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Like you, you've heard this, I'm sure, a thousand times, but it is that impactful of a book. It really is transformative. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's caused a lot of people to quit their jobs or a lot of people to get into our world of real estate investing or a lot of people to get into everything from real estate investing to Amway. It's caused people to get into other alternative ways to make money. Yeah, no, no doubt. So you you jump in, you you see the opportunity, and you're kind of doing what most of us entrepreneurs do. And back then, we didn't have the resources that we have today, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of trial by fire. And I would assume that you're brushing up against the same challenges that that most of us face: scale, access to capital. Mm -hmm. Um, I assume that was your reality, and if so. Is that where the raising capital piece came or was that mm -hmm. much further down the road for you? You know, I, I think that this has been my my life. It's been a, perhaps a bit of a charmed life, but a bit of a kind of walking and putting one foot in front of the other. And when something works, saying, oh, hey, that worked. I should do that again, <laughs> you know, kind of thing, right? And so- uh, what, what had happened with the capital was we, we did a bunch of deals with our own money. And we were also lucky enough to be doing this thing, James, in 2005, when the market was blowing up through 2008. So we refinanced our way up. Um, I, got, I had one property. It was a duplex in Philly that I owned that I refied every year and pulled out 30K every time I refied it and then sold it and made money again. Um, but that you could do that in, in the run up, right? Um, we also had a few immediate family members join us, like literally my parents and her and my wife's parents join us with what money that they had. We put their, their uh, money to work, um, in our business as well. So we were able to grow with that. The aha moment, the stumble into a thing, or like I said, walk into, walk into something that worked and let's do that again happened when my wife was getting reconnected to somebody she went to school with. Um, and she was just telling them about what we were up to with real estate investing. And my wife also had a full-time day job because we needed the revenue from her day job to pay our bills and to keep our trains running on time. Fine. So she uh, she was getting reconnected to this friend of hers and said, yeah, you know, I got this full-time day job, but my husband's building this real estate investing business, you know, and this person who's now graduated from the college my wife went to and is now a stockbroker in Manhattan putting in 80 hours a week, right? Making a lot of money, but putting in eight hours a week says the magic words. He says, real estate investing. That's interesting. I wish I could do that too, but I just don't have the time. And my wife hears something that's an opportunity. And she says, 
you should talk to my husband. And so me and my wife hopped on a train. And of course, where do all stockbrokers live? He lives up, he lives up in Manhattan. So me and my wife jumped on a train that next weekend and went up to me, go meet this guy at a little coffee shop in Manhattan. And he starts saying like, well, what if I gave you 50K to put to work in your business? What if I just gave you 50,000 to, to put into a, and this is post-crash, this is 2010, right? Um, so there's like, you know, blood running in the streets and people are looking for opportunities. Nobody can get a bank loan, but what you can get is equity, right? And what makes deals happen is equity. Bank loans are, you can't come by them anymore um, at that time, but, uh, but you can't get equity. And he was like, what if I gave you 50K? You know, and I'm like, you're, that's a great question. What if, what if you did do that, right? Let's find out. So we, I went out and found a couple of little single family home deals. He gave me 50K. We bought those two single family home deals in a blend of his equity and a, a private lender that I had who put his IRA into the deal. So I had an IRA loan and a, an equity from uh, this friend of my wife's and the deal went great. And so before you knew it, this New York stockbroker is telling his other buddies and his clients about this dude that's down in Trenton buying dilapidated houses, fixing them up and making cash flow for them, right? And so it just starts working. And before you know it, we're doing windshield tours with these guys, God bless them, from Manhattan, taking the train down New York City, from New York City down to Trenton. And they're, I'm driving them around and showing them the neighborhoods and everything like that. And we're me and the stockbroker guy start raising money through his network for deals in Trenton. And that was what that was the the aha moment that before you knew it, we were going from a couple single family homes into small multifamily, uh, small mixed use buildings, those kinds of things. And and it it uh, grew from there. So as you're putting these these decks together and these offerings together, is it, uh, were, were you thinking about what the market is bearing at this point, or mm -hmm. are you just building out a model like, Hey, this is what I do. Here's what I know I can pay. Here's what the returns are going to be. And, and mm -hmm. like, that's it. Well, you know, James, uh, there, there's always a difficult factor in real estate investing. And if you can dissolve that difficulty factor, then you can make it work. Right now, it's like finding deals that pencil, right? Like that's today's problem. Back then, um, deals penciled all the time. You just couldn't get financing, you know? Um, in 2010, 11, 12, people that were investing back then don't remember, but banks were super skittish because they got their teeth kicked in in 2008, right? So um, it was hard to find a bank that would finance a reasonable real estate opportunity. So you had to do the whole deal with private money. Um, and, and so the, uh, the deals penciled, you also needed to have in-house construction um, because all the deals were completely, you know, beat up and needed a bunch of work and everything like that. Um, and so uh, it was also, we, we ended up starting an in-house construction company to, to mitigate that. So we started to find a way, okay, how can I buy a property for X, do the renovations for Y, and when I'm all done, that I can be at a one and a half to 2% rule to give you my, my numbers here, right? And that was easy to do back then. I mean, the 2% rule is pretty much non-existent these days. Um, I'll explain what that is if you'd like, but the, but the we were able to get done in Trenton somewhere around those parameters so it was about finding the deal that needed the right amount of reno that was in a good location 
that you could pop into and and uh and 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 get it done and then you you would get a portfolio with these things going and then once you got a portfolio over a certain size then you could get a bank's attention once it was large enough to get a refi going so we would assemble a portfolio of deals with investor capital and then refinance them up into a new stabilized loan and then I'd free up all that equity all that private money and then I'd rinse and repeat and do it over again so that was our that was our model for for years so you've become experts and you have tremendous experience in identifying properties that are value add and bringing them to their highest and best use mm -hmm. uh, that is an incredibly rare skill hmm. and is, is this something that you've just learned and you it's, that's what i do right we find emerging markets and undervalued assets and yeah. it's hard to explain it it's very hard to teach it is this something that you've again developed on your own or were there resources that you relied on to help hone your trade? School of hard knocks, brother. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, I, I went to, I went to that school. And as you can see from the grays and everything like that, I just got my teeth kicked in enough and had enough contractors steal from me and had enough uh, deals go sour and had enough deals go bad that I learned what not to do and um, learned what to do, what not to do and had to trust my gut a lot. And, I didn't have, I didn't, it's not like I bought some course about how to do value add 101 kind of thing, right? Because um, there wasn't as much of that back then. Um, there was, uh, you know, a, a few different things, but it wasn't like the Burr strategy or the value add or whatever. It's just something people were kind of learning in real time, you know? Um, and so I implemented a lot of that and we learned what worked. And I had a few buddies that were doing the same thing. And so we would compare notes and say, hey, who's the best lender out there? Oh, it's that credit union. We, we learned how to really, really get a, a really good at borrowing money from credit unions. And so the credit union was the outsource for us. And we all, all my little real estate buddies would all kind of like figure out who the best lender was. And we would all go and, you know, uh, give that lender a lot of business that was doing the best work. So it was more like networking versus mentoring with somebody uh, and, and that kind of thing. Just finding somebody else doing the same thing and say, okay, what's working for you? Uh, you know, it, it doesn't work if I don't check their tenant's credit or, check their criminal background history. It doesn't work if I do that. So, you know, we just compare notes. That's all. So as you've grown over the years, have you remained focused in one or two areas or have, have you found that scarcity of deal and product has forced you to kind of expand those boundaries? Well, we, we scaled up in size and Trenton is only a... 80,000 population last time I checked. So it is tough to scale and grow in that market. There are apartment buildings. We're primarily a residential. Actually, I'm glad to say I'm only residential now because it just sold my office building a year, a week or two ago. Um, and that, so uh, we've been, our, our heart has been in residential real estate. And so it's hard to scale very big in that market or in New Jersey for that matter. And so as more and more investors started showing up, as we became lucky enough to be featured in bigger pockets as a blogger, and then eventually a podcast guest, and then eventually an author, more and more money started showing up from people that became aware of us from the track record that we were generating and from the right that we did by investors, and also by that attention that they were getting us, right? So it became really hard to put the money to work 
Justin Trenton. And so we had to expand out. Now, of course, we used to live in Philly. So we decided to go back to our to where it all started. And we did some work in Philly. Then Philly got really, really popular as a lot of New York money was looking for yield and went to Philly. And so Philly became unaffordable. So we started pushing into further markets in Pennsylvania, got into Lancaster, um, and then brought in a few partners that really, really helped me expand and think a little bit bigger because we were self-managing everything up until now, up until then, all the stuff was under my management. Um, and a few people that caused me to think a little bigger said, hey, management gives you a lot of control, but it's not going to give you scale. And so you need to focus on growing your business, not managing what you got. And so I was able to give away management to a third party. And that only able to, we literally 10x our size as a company by giving away things that didn't make us a lot of money. Um, and management did not make us very much income. It gave us control, uh, gave me oversight, gave me good vision, but didn't give me, uh, it didn't, wasn't really helping me scale. And so by giving that up, we then scaled quickly into North Carolina and into Kentucky. And those are our two primary markets now, Lexington, Kentucky, and the Piedmont Triad in North Carolina. Wow. It's, uh, it's amazing that you can be in this game and, and be a, a seven-day-a-week person and really work in your portfolio mm -hmm. and get lost in it a little bit and, and miss things like, hey, management gives you a good feel because you're, you're so connected to your assets, right? Mm -hmm. But it is really hard to scale and it really does take up a tremendous amount of time. Um, and we've made so many mistakes like that where we were doing things just because it's what we did. And yeah. you don't even realize that if you just step back a little bit and you, you selectively decide where you're going to put your intention, you could have explosive results. Well, let's expand on that for a second, James. I think that that the, the the epiphanies in my business happened, and I'm sure in your two, in yours too, happened when I stopped doing one thing and started doing something else. You know, the the real growth. Like you can have like organic growth, like you know, five, ten percent growth and that kind of thing by doing the same thing, just doing a little bit better, or by just pushing pushing a little bit harder and doing one thing a little bit differently, right? But if you truly stop doing one thing and open up the time so that you can do something different to grow your business, that's where exponential growth happens. Um, by me getting out of management and by me focusing on capital, by me focusing on markets and capital um, and allowing others to take over management, you know, post-ownership management, like asset management and also property management, that enabled me to grow exponentially, which I wouldn't have grown because like you said, there's only been so many hours in the day, right? So if I'm dealing with, you know, leading the team and where are my contractors going and um, which tenant gets approved and who didn't pay their rent, that's cool. That'll, that will make you money and that will also occupy your entire day. But if you start to question, what am I occupying my day with and what is the outcome that these tasks in front of me will generate, if you start to question that. And say, okay, if I extrapolate that out five years and keep doing this for five years, where does that take me? You know, and if if that place is not really, really where you want to go, then uh, you really ought to question it and find a way to get out from under doing what you're doing now and start doing things that will take you where you want to go. And that's the, the, that's made all the difference in my life and in my business. 
and and I appreciate you pausing and spending a few more moments on it because I think it is the most difficult thing to do. We're mm -hmm. so busy pedaling the bike while we're fixing it that yes. you lose vision, right? You lose sight of those things. And it's really hard. I think there's uh, part of it is just a, the familiarity of it. I think part of it is ego and emotion. Yep. Um, it's really hard to step back and say, I definitely shouldn't be doing half the things I'm yeah. doing now. Why right? am I sitting on this bike? Yeah. Right. Why am I, why am, why aren't I on a motorcycle? Why aren't I in that car over there? Whatever. Why am I sitting? Why am I continuing to pedal this bike? Why can't I have somebody else pedal this bike for me so I can fix it while it's, while somebody else is doing it? You're right. The primary thing I hear an entrepreneur say that is totally in their own way and not going to get where they want to go ever is saying things like, no one can do it like me, or I have to do it myself, or I have to make sure it gets done right. BS, man. Um, that's, a, that's a great way to stay stuck, is yep. to insist that you have to do everything yourself. Because you'll never duplicate yourself completely. You'll never um, you'll never really scale that way. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a dirty secret, right? This is just a fact. We, if I had to truly score my property management company when I was running it, and I'm not like high-fiving myself, we were good at it, right? Um, we, I would score me at like a seven and a half or an eight out of 10 on collections, 10 and happiness, work order, work order taking, you know, the, the ability to crush out work orders, functionality, everything. Seven and a half, eight out of 10. We we're good at it. When we hired a new PM, probably like six and a half out of 10. But I had to accept that little bit of a, I had to accept that to scale, you know, and then I'm able to put them in a headlock and everything like that because they can do a good job. Yeah. You know what? Maybe you accept, maybe you'd accept the dirty little secret that maybe somebody else can't do it as good as you can, right? Maybe they can do it good enough though, right? Maybe they can do it good enough so that it gets done or do it their way. And maybe they can do it better. But not for nothing, you got to really look at the big picture and where your time is better spent. Can you accept the six and a half out of 10 property management companies so that you can 10 extra portfolio size? Maybe, maybe it's worth it, you know? Yeah, it, it's um, to have the drop off from seven and a half to six and a half is, is negligible. We're, we're, we're shooting for like 70%. We're, we're trying to say if, if we can put things down and the next person can pick it up and do it 70%, the way we would do it when we personally have our hands in it. And then over time that becomes a 73 and a 75. Yeah. And, you know, if you can move them up a little bit, great. But if you can get it 70%, man, I feel like that's good enough to, to pick up and move on. You got to be willing thing. to put your ego down for that. Right. Oh, yeah. You get a big, then there's a lot of big fat egos in this business, James and all that, but, uh, but you got to be willing to put that down to say, well, I got to see the forest beyond the trees. And yeah, I'm right. They can't do it as well as I can. But what I can do better than they can is scale my business and build relationships and find opportunities and think a little bit bigger. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they can't. Maybe they. Maybe with their systems, they're going to run it at a nine out of ten. Yeah. You know. And, and that that would really hurt my ego if they did it better than I did. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? No doubt, but yeah. uh, these are the challenges to growth, man. Scale yeah, yeah, is the yeah. hardest thing in the world to yeah. accomplish with any level of success. Mm -hmm. so, so 
let's talk market today. Yeah. Um, what are you seeing out there? Bank crisis, not a bank crisis. Mess. This is a yeah. big ass mess. That's what I'm seeing today, James. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm seeing sellers that haven't come back to reality at to what the at, at the, what the market is really able to bear. They act like money still gets borrowed at what they paid to borrow pro money for properties. Um, I, I think that that the brokers are probably the biggest devils in this whole business right now. The real estate brokers that are trying as hard as they can to drive up pricing, to try and keep the party going, and they're just not allowing for the mild correction, man. I'm not talking about blood in the streets. I'm not talking about like this thing getting cut in half or whatever it is, that's not going to happen. I just, just give me like, get, let's get to reality. And I think that that probably means like a 10, maybe 15% price clip in some D in some instances, but not, not the end of the world, but the brokers just can't, they perhaps their ego can't allow that to happen. And they just want prices to be the same as they were in 2018, 19, you know? Um, I, I think that, there is reality because I don't think rates are going down anytime soon. Again, my crystal ball is broken. I have no idea what's going to happen, but um, I will say that I think rates are going to stay the same for a while, which will eventually start to take some of the wind out of the market, you know? Um, but I think it'll have to happen deal by deal, uh, you know, one by one. I think that there are some people that overbought in my world anyway, I think that you're in retail, but, but, it, but in, in my world, I'm in multifamily mostly. Right. So um, we're also, in, we're in hard money lending and uh, multifamily. That's what my company, that that's our focus is. Right. So um, at, at the end of the day uh, I'm seeing probably more opportunity come in as people maybe get to a point where they need to sell, you know, and I don't wish ill will on anybody, but maybe if they overpaid a little bit and they went and undercapitalized, maybe it's better to just hit control, alt, delete and reboot and, and try again another day and just let that property go or, you know, just, just sell it for what they can get for it and move on. Right. Um, we uh, are seeing a lot of that uh, like underneath the sheets though. And I think it'll become more prevalent but I don't think it's going to drag the market down. That's my prediction, if you will. Or, and that's also what I'm just seeing. So for the last few years, we saw a lot, a lot of pro formas that scared the heck out of us. Hmm. We, we saw a lot of, um, you know, banking on a 30% pickup in rents from loss to lease items. Oh, yeah. And you know, someone entering a new market where they've never managed before in an inflationary period, chopping expenses by 20% and, you know, tinkering with things and driving another five or 10% on hmm. in NOI. So I got to uh, do, right? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and like, if, if those things didn't happen, which they weren't going to, right. You, you can't tell me you're going to cut expenses in a market you have no experience in. Mm-hmm. While inflation is, I don't care what they reported, it was at 11, 12, 13% for a while there. It, it, these things are just not possible. So a lot of those deals took short-term money. Like for, for us, it's always get to the other side of the rainbow. You must have that debt to get you to that next turn in the market. Uh, and we're starting to see this get reported now where there's, um, there was a, a, a story in Real Deal a week or two ago the first quarter of this massive amount of debt is coming due and 
these small to mid cap banks, deposits have dropped, right? COVID mm -hmm. money is burned off. People mm -hmm. are not earning like they used to. Savings are, are being eaten out, eaten up. Big banks are sucking deposits out into their mm -hmm. institutions through mm -hmm. incentives. When those notes come due, what happens? I mean, the, the, even if they're performing notes, these lenders can't extend credit anymore because mm -hmm. they're they've now fallen below their reserves. Mm -hmm. Do, does it get to that point where we we're seeing note sales at 30, 40 cents on the dollar again and, and we get to that level? Or do you think it doesn't get that bad? Um, maybe, maybe it does. But you got, if, if you want to be, okay, maybe it does. If you want to take advantage of that, you got to be on the inside. You know, I don't think that hits, I don't think that hits the market. You know, I don't think that, that the retail buyer that's sitting around waiting for this thing to collapse is going to get to take advantage of any of that. Um, there are certainly going to be plenty of banks selling off, the, unloading their bad debt, unloading their bad assets, um, and sellers that need to sell that, uh, that can't get refied or whatever looking to unload, but you're not going to get into the no on those things unless you're plugged in. And the way you get plugged in is by picking a specific market, picking a specific asset class and um, becoming a infiltrated expert on those things. So I think that what I would do now, everything you just said, yes, but also remember real estate is kind of slow to move, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to start moving a little bit quicker soon. Um, so the, what I would do now if I were any of your listeners or whatever, is I would become uber focused. You can't just sit around and wait for good deals to show up on LoopNet. You can't just sit around and, and like, oh, okay, I'm just going to sit and wait for this thing to hit. It's not going to happen. If, if you're, you're not going to see it, it'll happen. Good deals are going to get had. 30 cents on the dollar is going to happen. But the, those that know the brokers, those that are already talking to the banks about buying bad assets, that that have a bunch of equity lined up from investors um, and have a really tight buy box, geographic and asset class wise, those are the folks that are going to get the, the phone ring because the uh, whether it's a bank or a seller, they can't afford to go back and forth and deal with retrades and well, I need another 30 day extension or whatever. It's like, no, you got to buy it right now. And as is where it is, they buy it right now and you get this great price um, and, and everything like that. So I think that what you can do is get equity lined up and tighten in on markets. And then, for, you know, for what they're predicting in the real deal article, if that does happen, then there's opportunities to get had. I, what do you think about that? Curious. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. without a doubt, it was a we were making a conscious decision, or and we we decided to not do this. But about a year ago, we we had determined if we wanted to be on that inside track when this glut hits, because we're we're fairly convinced it's going to hit. We think the the decentralization of the big cities is is grossly underreported. It's very real. There's an office market issue that's that's coming that's also very real curious to hear what you think the solution on that one is by the way well unfortunately there there isn't a solution that's short of 20 years at this point you know when when the cities decentralized and they shut us down and locked us down as long as they did uh people changed their habits and behaviors mm -hmm. and that now they, they we broke the old habit we instituted a new habit and folks are more aware of equilibrium in their lives. They're more aware of wellness and health. 
They're more aware of being connected to the outdoors and nature. And companies also skinnied up and said, you know what? I don't need this office on Fifth Avenue. I don't need to have this mm-hmm. this crazy legislation where every month it seems like there's a new rule, there's a new lawsuit, there's a new insurance. And they, they said, okay, this is our chance to save face and kind of quietly back out and start to relocate elsewhere. The reason big cities rebound always is because they're the epicenter of jobs. Mm-hmm. That's over. Mm-hmm. They're not the epicenter of jobs the way they used to be anymore. So your tertiary markets became secondary. Your secondary became primary. And, you know, we've seen this cycle before, right, mm-hmm. Matt, where normally Florida right now would be getting annihilated. It'd be getting clobbered because the music has stopped. That's not happening because mm-hmm. a number of the people have now made Florida home, South yep. Carolina, New Mexico, Arizona, you name it. Yeah. People have, have relocated. And I think that and they're avoiding snow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. You know, they're, they're going where it's nice and warm. It's nice and warm. It feels safe. It's clean. Yeah. And, you know, I think that unfortunately that's a, that's a two to three term um issue that the mayors and governors are going to have to deal with and and they'll reinvent themselves and they'll be you know they'll become the epicenter for whatever it's going to be next it's just i don't i don't believe personally that that happens in one cycle or Mm -hmm. even two i think it's going to take a good bit of time my two cents are you still have a housing shortage in america uh Mm -hmm. and we, we still will for the foreseeable future um, if you if you can price the, that office complex appropriately, the there becomes interesting equations of adaptive reuse, right? Mm-hmm. That office complex, you know, what is it, right? It, it, it's a big box that that is a prime that is probably like super prime located near highways, near food, near retail, near shopping, near all kinds of cool stuff, right? All things that people want to live near, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's also got good bones. Typically, a lot of times they're made from steel or poured in place concrete, right? So um, they're built like a big bomb house, right? Uh, so, but within it, with some adaptive reuse, and likely enough, even James, people don't think about this, but you need more plumbing in an office building because office buildings aren't designed for people to take things like showers and kitchens and that kind of stuff. But if you implement um, uh, the the plumbing to to house those things you got enough you got more electricity you know what to do with in an office building yeah. right office buildings actually use more electricity than a house does than a residential home so if you convert the heating systems over to electric if you run all the physical plant off of much as much electricity as you can and integrate new plumbing solutions Mm -hmm. then you probably got a really cool thing that with enough window that the right building with enough windows and enough egress could become a really cool residential structure and so i think that if office makes a big enough correction you'll see some really interesting solutions come online um for maybe the use of people that maybe part like they live someplace and they part-time work so maybe their their regis we work kind of thing is there they live up on one floor and they work on another floor and they work out on the third on the fifth floor or whatever and you could kind of create like a all under one roof living situation now there's a lot of money that has to happen there's a lot of visionary work that has to happen to make something like that actually you know 
happen. And there's a lot of people have to, you know, end up losing the, and banks that may have to take a bath in these office buildings or whatever for, th for them to trade in the 20 to $30 a square foot range, which is probably where they have to go for all that mechanical work and all that risk factor to be baked in for somebody to turn that into a new thing. And office buildings are priced way more than $23 a square foot right now. So there's got to be that correction happens. And then th then yep. the rebirth happens. So so I agree with a lot of the things you're saying. We I sit on a, a few panels um, for the last mayor and this mayor. And I had actually written a letter very similar to what mm. you're saying a few years ago when COVID just was hitting. Like, what is that? It was a, a, a group to study. What is tomorrow going to look like? What is New York reopening going to look like? I think it was actually called Reopen New York. Anyway, um, what I've, I've seen change, though, is the delta between where those office buildings refinanced in the upswing and where they need to be is so massive mm -hmm. that maybe it's federal money that, that comes in and helps to reposition these things, right? Yep. But the second piece that... Uh, again, I, I don't think it's being reported the way it should be, is the office workers are decentralizing, the retail workers are decentralizing, mm -hmm. retail stores are closing yep. everywhere because people are walking in and walking out with half the store, right? There's this new paradigm and we're seeing it with retailer after retailer and city after city. The people that are going to occupy these new buildings, and we're talking about a, a lot of buildings in a city like New York, they need a place to work, mm -hmm. right? So we've mm -hmm. got to find a way to stem the tide and keep those retailers and bring these office tenants back and keep mm -hmm. industry going. Otherwise, you know, they still have to pay rent <laughs> and they still have to go to work. So yeah. uh, that that's our perception on it, at least, is we think that if we're not careful, uh, this can be a real, a real mess. Yeah. Well, you're still going to need some retail, right? I mean, at some point you and I have to get a haircut somewhere and mm -hmm. I'll never get my haircut online. Jeff Bezos <laughs> can do a lot of things, but Jeff Bezos can't cut my hair. You know, um, he can't do my wife's nails. He can't, you know, do a lot of the different stuff. He, what, he, what online can do is do a doctor's appointment. What they can do is do a wellness visit. Um, and you're going to see a lot more things that people never thought they would do online, do online, you know? Um, but there are certain things that'll never happen. You just can't, you know, uh, in an online solution. So I think there'll need to be some retail. And I also think that people just need to remember, like, this is part of the human condition wants to be out and oh, yeah. wants to be with people. And there's just a certain part of human nature that even if you could, if you could meet all my needs inside the four walls of my home, I still probably would want to get out and about and do something and go be with people, go to a festival, go to a park, go to a plaza, go sit and have a coffee with a friend or something like that. Even if I've got the best Nespresso coffee ever in my in my kitchen, I still want to go have a, a, a mediocre cup of coffee sitting across the table from a friend, you know, um, and that. So I think that, that there's also a human condition that wants to be with other humans and so I think that if we can play into that in retail sure. answers, um, I've even, I've, I had a friend that was looking to buy a strip center that had a big plot of land behind it. And they were talking about turning the plot of land into like a, like 
pavilion slash mixed use slash like festival-y kind of space where you can put live smart. music and food trucks and that kind of stuff. And the retail's still there. The retail's got the nail salon and the haircut place. And yeah, a clothing store, God forbid. You don't didn't buy the clothing on Amazon. You can walk in there and buy vintage clothes or whatever. Um, and I think it's a good move because they're playing into the human desire of, of our need to be with each other, you know? But I think that if you play to those needs and and not to the way that we've always done things, and that's what we talked about at the beginning of the show, of business owners doing things the way they've always done things. If you try and do things the way they've always been done, you might not get to the the new the the, the new reality. And the new reality is going to be very different. You should, we should be questioning everything. Like, why am I sitting in an office building when I could be here? Why am I? doing this to consume product or doing this to eat food when, when I could be, you know, doing, doing something, doing it differently. Right. If you question, the more we question and the more we come up with new ideas, the more I think adaptive reuse and tweaking real estate use will help us get to new, the, a new frontier. Uh, this is a fascinating chat. Uh, before I, I let you run, can you just speak a little bit about the coaching program that you're offering? And I saw a post from a couple of days ago about a new fund. Yes, sure. Can you just Thank spend you. a few minutes on that? Two things. Um, we believe that there are, this is on the coaching side, we believe that everyone in real estate has a bit of a, like a strength, call it a unique ability, call it uh, something that they bring to the table. And just because you get into real estate investing, you're like, man, I'm probably not a good real estate investor because I can't underwrite or I can't, I don't want to talk to people to raise money or I don't want to be the the hard ass that goes and browbeats contractors into submission or something like that. There are facets of real estate investing that no, not one person can be good at everything. So we believe that that there is a core strength that somebody brings to the table. And I think there are four core strengths. And I, and I think that so everybody possesses at least one of them. And under the right leadership, the right coaching programs, we can help people take their one, maybe two core strengths and help them 10X their business by focusing on just what they're great at and outsourcing very quickly the things that they're not. So we've, we've built a, a phenomenal program that help that can help people get there. They can learn more about it on our website, DeRosaGroup.com. Um, but our education vehicles help people bring out their best uh, into the real estate investing business. Um, that's number one. The fund, um, we are a primarily a multifamily syndicator, which means my company goes and buys a multifamily apartment building and we break that building down into bite-sized chunks and sell those chunks of equity off to investors that want to buy into the building, right? All well and good. It's done very well for us, extremely well for our investors. That said, that can be a slow growth of cash flow where there's little to no cash flow in the beginning and then a you know stream, a, a trickle, then a stream, then a river, and then maybe an avalanche at some point when the property sells, right? Um, but but it, it, it tends to grow over a long period of time. I believe that there should be other vehicles that, uh, and other things like, you know, you can't compound your returns in multifamily syndications. So if I send you a check, you can't invest it back in automatically. So I, I believe that multifamily syndications have gaps in what they can offer just due to structure, right? So we built this new thing called DeRosa Income Fund. Um, 
that answers the question of like, what if I don't need the distributions? What if I want to recycle it in? What if I want to get my money back? What if I want something liquid? Well, you can't liquidate a multifamily apartment building, but a, a fund you can. So Derosa Income Fund is liquid. It is something that compounds returns. Um, and it also plays into something that I think we're going to need more of in America. And you and I have talked about, it, it's like the underlying theme, but we talked about all of this thing here is dollars to transform things from one condition that they're in into something else. Call it bridge debt, call it, you know, short-term, short-term loans, right? Mm -hmm. So Drosa Income Fund is a provider of short-term bridge loans to take things from A and convert them into B. Uh, that's what Drosa Income Fund is and does. It's been very successful. We've got millions at work already. Um, and, and it is an open fund. So people can get in when they do. They can learn about that at DeRosaGroup.com as well. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, and Thank again, you. born out of questioning everything and thinking about better ways to yeah. deploy capital. And, and just because one vehicle says this is the way it has to be done, why the hell not put together a vehicle that allows you to compound and is liquid and does these other things? I mm -hmm. think it's brilliant, man. I love it. Thanks, brother. You, you are really just... I mean, it's a pleasure to chat with you. You've done amazing things. I was really looking forward to this one. Congrats on all the success and best of luck in, into the future. Thank you, James. It's been a pleasure to be here today. As always, folks, please stay safe.